Research is a podcast that explores current nutritional research and health studies. Our lawyer says we have to let you know that this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informative purposes only. If you have any health questions, see your doctor or licensed health professional. Awesome. Welcome back to Research. Yay. Hello, everybody. Hi. I'm Lisa. I'm Lindsay. And uh, we're back to talk with you about some more really cool research that's uh, being published now. Today, we are going to be talking, it's my turn, and we are going to be talking about uh, fasting and intermittent, uh, intermittent fasting and calorie restriction. These have been some hot topics in nutrition lately, I would say a little bit more so in the past couple of years. Uh, so we're going to look at comparing the two. Awesome. Let's compare. Yeah. Intermittent fasting is such a hot topic, that's for sure. I know. And it's everybody keeps saying like, you know, is it worth it? Is it as good as people say it is? So we have a really cool study comparing the two. It's a randomized clinical trial, which is always really good. Uh, this was a newer publication from 2019. Um, so it, it's not even that old. Let's get into it. Background uh, metabolic disease is, of course, ties back to health issues. Uh, metabolic disease is a really, really common metabolic disorder. Uh, just seems like there's so many people now afflicted with it, which is very unfortunate. Right. Typically, people are afflicted with the uh, with abdominal obesity, which is fat around the waist. And this is in the belly button area. This is one of what we know is one of the indicators of increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So when you start developing that abdominal fat, um, often it's tied with visceral fat, which is the fat that's kind of in the cavity where all your organs are. Uh, and this is the stuff that the more of that you have, the more at risk you are for a lot of health issues, including dying, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And it's simple enough to measure. You just measure your waist and there's different ways you can do it. You can compare it to your height or you can compare it to your waist, uh, sorry, your hips right? Um, as a way of figuring out kind of where you are in that risk profile. It's also indicative or linked to insulin resistance, hyperglycemia, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and low HDL. So for those of you that are new to some of these terms, hyperglycemia is high blood sugar. Uh, hypertension is high blood pressure. Dyslipidemia means that you have an imbalance of the lipids that we find in our blood. And HDL is that high density lipoprotein that often is indicative of heart disease, how at risk you are for heart disease. But this is what a lot of people coin as the good cholesterol, right? So this is the stuff that's getting cleaned up, shipped off to the liver so that it can get excreted. Uh, so the presence of metabolic disease increases your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease by twofold and diabetes by fivefold. So and these are significant numbers. Like a lot yeah. of times in the news, you hear an increase to like a 10% increased risk or 30%. This is like 200% and 500% increased risk. 
Yeah, I'm glad that you reworded that because sometimes it's it's kind of hard to understand. But yeah, it's like two times or five times more likely. Yeah. So I mean, anything we could do, and the good thing is metabolic disease. There are so many factors, lifestyle factors, including diet, uh, but other things like activity level, sleep, stress, and so on. All of these play a role, which means you have control over it. You just have to be willing to, to do the work. So we'll get into that in a second, though. We're jumping ahead. Uh, the general consensus is that there's a genetic link as well. Uh, but of course, diet and activity both play a role. We know we should eat less calories. Like this is not a surprise to anybody in the nutrition sphere. We have an abundance of calories available to us now, like no other time in history. But we need to be eating more nutrient-dense foods without calorie-dense foods. So again, we're not trying to restrict all foods. We're just trying to really restrict or cut out those calorie dense foods that are very low nutrient dense. Like, can you give um, some examples of the nutrient dense versus the calorie dense forever? Yeah. So calorie dense would be potato chips or French fries, for example, stuff that's got a lot of fat in it. And I'm not saying fats to be vilified here, but when we look at the nutrients that we're getting out of these foods, it's really low. Like there's no vitamin C, there's no vitamin like B vitamins. There's probably very little of the fat soluble vitamins, vitamin A, vitamin E, and so on. Whereas if you compare something like an avocado, which is also a high fat food, but in avocados, now we're getting a little bit more calories than your average vegetable or fruit. Avocado is actually a fruit, but we're also getting vitamin E, we're getting fiber, vitamin A, I believe. And I don't have all the nutrient details on avocados, but the content of what you're actually getting from that food is way higher right. in terms of nutritional value. Right. So it's like and nutrients so per calorie. Yeah. You're really kind of comparing those two directly. And so we're really trying to focus on foods that we're going to be getting lots of nutrients from, and we may be getting lots of calories or we may not be, but really we're just trying to bump up that nutrient content, if that makes sense. So totally. Yep. More yes. nutrition. We need more nutrition. <laughs> we totally need more nutrition and just less fast, totally nutrient void, um, fast food and um, convenience foods uh, and a little bit more just health food, a little bit more good food. And again, there's lots of good ways to do this. But anyways, yeah, I'm diverging. Let's get back on track with calorie restriction. This study has been around or at least information on calorie restriction has been around for decades, if not longer. It's really actually, uh, initially it was shown to increase longevity in people and animal studies, because again, we're not restricting nutrients. What we're restricting is calories, but we're doing it in such a way that we're not starving ourselves. And I think this is the key point. A lot of people think, oh, when you have to restrict calories, you're going to be hungry all the time. And it will feel like that at first when you first make the changes and start cutting back, but you're finding ways to fill your belly without all of the calories that go with it. And this, this typically means we're looking at lots of fiber, lots of good quality protein and lots of healthy fats. Cause that's really what's going to get that satiety trigger going, um, which is tied to leptin. Uh, this is the hormone that basically tells your brain like, hey, we're good. We're full. Our tummy's full. There's lots of good things here. Um, yeah, there's uh, leptin's a good one. 
so what we're doing when we are on calorie restriction, typically we're restricting our calories by 15 to 40%. It really depends on where you're starting from and what your goals are. Uh, it's been studied for about 30 years, tons of health benefits with this improved metabolism, increased autophagy or autophagy. There's lots of different ways to pronounce that word. Um, this is when we have, it's, we have our immune system basically eating up dead or sick cells. Uh, and so this is a way of kind of controlling the health of the tissue um, in autophagy. Uh, decrease in inflammation, improve fasting glucose, uh, and increase longevity, just to name a few. And these are all benefits for calorie that restriction. we've seen in calorie restriction when you're exactly. eating as many calories in general. Yeah. Yep. And so the, the problem with this, though, is that long-term compliance is low. I don't know what the uh, term or uh, define as long-term compliance. I mean, for some going like this for a week would be a long time. For some going for months would be a long time. Definitely going on for years would be extremely difficult because right. the, and this goes back to our hormones. Our hormones are the dictators of how we feel. And if we are not getting that satiety with what we're eating, if we're not being very intentional with what we're eating to make sure our body's getting everything it needs and getting that full feeling and that satisfied feeling, eventually your hormones are gonna take over and you're gonna turn into a hungry beast and you're just gonna eat everything, which is why compliance is low because it's, it's hard to maintain because it does take a lot of work, a lot of intention, a lot of thought to eat that way. Um, especially at the beginning, making changes is always the hardest. When but you're hungry, you when you're hungry. Eat. Yeah. Right. Like there's that term hangry for a reason, right? right? Like people, turn, people turn into different creatures uh, when they get hungry. We right. see this with children a lot. Um, but you know, what's funny is you see it just as much with adults. They just maybe don't always aren't aware of it or don't acknowledge it, but you know, they're, they're, they definitely get happier after everybody has a good meal. Right. And this is a totally natural response. Like this is your body saying, Hey, I'm hungry. I need something. Exactly, exactly. So this is, this is not out of the norm. But it's, again, it's, it's there for a reason, it's there to protect us. Uh, and so you, you do have to be very careful over what you're eating. But it can be done. And it's obviously studies show that it's worth it. Uh, but you definitely have to educate yourself on how to do it correctly. So on the flip side of calorie restriction, we have intermittent fasting. And this is similar, but a little bit different. What we're doing here is restricting the consumption of food at specific times of the day. There's different ways you can go about it. Some people fast for eight hours, 10 hours, 14 hours, 16 hours, kind of along those lines. Um, some people even go as far as like a 24 hour period where you're not eating and you're allowing your digestive system to have a break from the act of digestion and absorption of food. Um, a lot of people don't realize that your digestive system works really hard to break down uh, and utilize all of the food that we consume. It's not like you just eat a steak and your body's like, all right, we're good to go. And it just kind of like melds into your body. It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, there's a lot of enzymes. There's a lot of bile production. There's a lot of pH muscle action. Too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of work that goes involved in digesting and utilizing nutrients. And so this is where the idea of intermittent fasting comes in, where, you know, we're allowing our body to take a break from all this hard work. And so a lot of housekeeping 
um, can be done at this time. And so we have direct improvement of the digestive system um, because again, we can do cleanup and it, there's a lot of other things that can happen in the digestive system. But as well, we're allowing our body a break so that we can use up excess stored material. So people that um, are looking at dipping into fat stores, you know, it, it's a way of pulling out other stored energy, um, which is why it can be good for like weight loss, for example. Uh, so there are metabolic factors that come into it because it's not just on the digestive level that we start seeing improvements, but how your body metabolizes foods uh, overall. Right. So I'm probably not doing it justice because I haven't specialized in metabolism. I kind of get the general concept. Um, so again, if anybody knows anything out there, please don't hesitate to jump in. I'm always wanting to learn more. But this is this is my understanding of intermittent fasting. Just uh, as a quick recap. Yeah. Calorie restricted eating is restricting the calories you take on an everyday basis, every potentially meal basis. It's a regular thing. And yes. intermittent fasting is when you choose either times of the day or days of the week where you eat very little or nothing. And then there are other times when you can eat um, as much as you want until you're full. And those are exactly. the differences between these two. So they're going to have different metabolic effects on our bodies, depending yes. upon how we do them. Perfect. Yeah. I love that summary. Good job. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's kind of the breakdown of uh, how we can approach it. Um, intermittent fasting has been used in religious traditions for millennia. There's quite a few different religious groups um, that have different fasting periods, including, I mean, one of the more, I would say, vocal ones in North America, which is Christianity. Of course, we look at Lent. Uh, in the spring. And that's kind of one of the ones where we're giving up and kind of restricting what we're eating. Um, but there's so many other ones. But again, I'm not a specialist in this area. So I don't even want to mention some of them. If anybody knows of any, we would love to hear about them. Yeah, for sure. The benefits of intermittent fasting are the same from what we understand of those with calorie restriction. And often there's so much overlap. So it doesn't surprise anybody that the, the health benefits and the health, the health implications are very similar. Intermittent fasting can also be done as fast days, like you said, and normal days, which is good. It's normal days in the study are called feed days, which I thought was hilarious. So every time I saw they're like, it's a feed day. I was like, I feel like we're animals being yes. fed. <laughs> Uh, but that's what they call it, just so that it's very clear on uh, what's going on on certain days. Um, and so really what this study was looking at was the difference in health outcomes between calorie restriction and intermittent fasting. And so it's kind of neat because we're comparing two practices that can have really beneficial outcomes. But is there a difference in how well one works over another? And I'm so interested to find out. Yeah, it's really cool. Let's, <laughs> let's get to it. So the study uh, is, ter is titled Modified Alternate Day Fasting versus Calorie Restriction in the Treatment of Patients with Metabolic Syndrome, a Randomized Clinical Trial. And there's uh, quite a few authors here. Um, Arif Paravesh, I really hope I'm not butchering that name. I don't like doing that. Um, but then there's, there's quite a few others. Of course, we will link to the resource, the original resource in all of our studies, in all of our... Um, online transcripts. Uh, this was a randomized clinical trial. So it was a little bit different from a randomized control trial because there's no control. 
So we have two groups. There were 70 participants altogether broken into two groups. Either they did intermittent fasting or they did the calorie restriction and no control. So we were just comparing one treatment to another treatment. Uh, the study was conducted in Iran. We had the alternate day fasting. So this was the intermittent fasting uh, during the week, if we broke the week up into seven days, we had three days of calorie restriction, which is when they were eating 75% of their calories between noon and 2 p.m. So they had a two hour window in which to eat probably one meal and maybe a snack. And then the rest of the time, they weren't allowed anything else. Um, that was Saturday, Monday and Wednesday. And then we had three feed days. <laughs> Where they could eat hundred uh, percent of the calories were required. So there was some calculation in terms of how much calories they should be eating. And so that's what they were allowed to eat. That was Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And then Friday, they were allowed to eat ad libitum, which meant like they could eat whatever they wanted for the day. Right. Um, which is interesting that they did include that one day of like, go crazy. You can eat what you want, you want when you want. So yeah, you have control this day. You were nobody's trying to control when you eat on this day. Yeah, so, I mean, so I, again, you've got to look forward to that day. Oh, I'm sure they do. I know <laughs> I was. <laughs> it's it just seeing that kind of already had me thinking about some of the benefits to that long term in terms of compliance, being able to maintain this, right? right? Like, there's so many studies on willpower, um, and just being able to maintain your goals. And so I could see having a day of just like, you know, I'm, I can just relax and do whatever I need to do. I could see how that would be hugely beneficial to the mental health aspect right. of a study like this, or just that approach. Um, and then of course, uh, there was some calorie free foods allowed during the fasting time. Um, they were allowed to consume coffee, no sugar or milk though. Um, so it was black with nothing in it because we didn't want to stimulate the digestive system. Green tea, again, with nothing else in it. Water, lettuce, cucumber, leafy greens, tomatoes. That one kind of shocked me, actually. And sugar-free gum also kind of shocked me as well. But they were allowed those throughout the day on the fasting days to help them get through that 22-hour period where they had to fast. Right. Yeah. Uh, with the calorie restriction, 75% uh, of calories consumed every day. Um, and so again, we have a reduction of 25% of the calories that um, they weren't specific on if it was compared to what they normally eat in terms of calories per day, or if it was what they should be eating calories per day. Right. Uh, so I'm not sure about that. And I should look and see if I can find that out. Uh, both diets were followed for eight weeks. And then what they were doing was looking at the variables of total cholesterol, triglyceride levels, HDL and LDL. So that's high density lipoprotein and low density lipoprotein levels, fasting glucose, fasting insulin levels, uh, body uh, weight to height ratio, which is also known as the BMI. And they were looking at waist circumference. So lots of outcomes in terms of what benefits we're able to see. And interestingly enough, there was a difference between the two. Wow. So they both showed uh, positive outcomes, but there was a significantly better outcome with one over the other. So before we go ahead, can you guess which one would have had the better outcome? I'm guessing intermittent fasting because that's what we're calling this episode. <laughs> 
Spoiler but alert. It's good <laughs> to know that it, there's a difference, that this is being studied, the two different ways of reducing your calories, whether it's on uh, an everyday platform or whether it's day-to-day, hour-to-hour. Um, even though if you kind of average it all out, mm-hmm. you might end up averaging the same, but this study is actually looking at whether the timing is different. So that is fascinating. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It, it, I was uh, quite impressed, actually. Uh, overall, each showed significant improvements in weight, BMI, waist circumference, total, uh, sorry, triglycerides, and fasting glucose, which was really cool. So either way you want to go, you're going to get health benefits. Right. Um, but there was with intermittent fasting, there was significant improvements in blood pressure in both values. So diastolic and systolic um, and HOMA A and HOMA A was one that is a calculation you can do to look at how insulin resistant you are. There's a couple of different factors they, they put in. I'm not going to go into details with what it is, um, but HOMA is looking at um, insulin sensitivity. So there was a marked improvement in sensitivity with intermittent fasting. Which we know is going to have direct health benefits to whether you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. So you can improve your, you can improve your weight, your BMI, your waist circumference, your triglycerides, and your blood sugars. Both of those improve those factors, which are all, that's fantastic. But with intermittent fasting specifically, you also improve, improve your systolic and asystolic diastolic your blood pressure (laughs) both (laughs) measurements of your blood pressure and your insulin sensitivity yeah and this is after eight weeks after only eight weeks which is not a huge amount of time right right like in two months we start seeing significant improvements right that's that's pretty mind-blowing in my mind so yeah that's really cool um Intermittent fasting showed improved uh, significant improvements over calorie restriction in other markers such as body weight, waist circumference, systolic blood pressure, uh, and fasting glucose. Uh, Both showed improvement. Um, But again, IF just showed even more improvement, which is pretty cool. Uh, Before and after comparisons were all done by T-test and chi-squared. So again, looking back to um, T-tests, this I've done a little bit of research into t-tests it actually uh, was a guy who worked at Guinness who wanted to show uh, differences between batches of beer amazing look at what motivates people to create new things I know so of course (laughs) this was in Ireland but the guy worked for Guinness and so he couldn't publish under Guinness because they didn't want um, to be connected to something like that. And that's where the name student T test from because he published a, a, under the name student. Really? Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. So totally. it has nothing to do with being a student. It just had implications in him wanting to stay anonymous <laughs> and the company wanting to stay anonymous. Really? But it's just a way of testing significance uh, between two groups. Right. That's all a T test is. That's all a chi squared test is. There's fancy math behind it. But we don't have to know it right now. We just have to know whether it was significant or not. Um, IR and CR values. So that's intermittent fasting. Sorry, IF. IF and CR, which is calorie restriction. Um, used ANCOVA, which is an ANOVA test, which is when we're looking at a T-test just among more than two groups. So T-test is just like A and B comparison. Right. Whereas when we're looking at an ANOVA, 
we're looking like A, B, C, D or whatever, like more than two, we're just doing statistical t-tests on it. Um, and then it kind of combines it with regression analysis, which we've talked a little bit about, but it's this, this math mixture of the two of them. Um, so that's the statistics that were used. Again, I don't like going into too much detail because people tend to run screaming when they hear statistics. <laughs> uh, with this study, like it was done really, really well. Um, I liked it. Uh, everything was laid out. I found it easy to follow. All the charts were there. You could see exactly when there was improvements, when there wasn't. I was able to go through and highlight everything. So if you want to pick this up, this is definitely a good article to start getting comfortable with reading articles and understanding kind of how the whole scientific process works. Excellent. Um, yeah. So I would describe the strength as a seven. Um, the only thing is the study size was a little bit on the smaller side, like 70. It seems like a pretty good number, but in terms of statistical weight, you know, if you could be in the hundreds or even the thousands, you're way better off. Right. And there was no control. So right, maybe, right. maybe a six or a seven, but just the way that it was run, I felt it was, it was really good. Uh, the only other downfall is they didn't describe the diet specifically. They did say that all the participants were under the direction of a dietitian and they were monitored weekly with phone calls. Okay. But in terms of the specific diet breakdown, I did not find any data. So people were, it sounds, left to follow the diet on their own. Follow, that's what I'm kind of assuming, and I could be wrong, but it sounded like they were left to follow their diet on their own. However, they went, were under the guidance of a dietitian. Yes. So there was help. some education and help involved, which is good. Um, and obviously, especially the people under calorie restriction, they would have needed guidance to make sure that they could adhere for eight weeks. Because again, if you're going to be starving yourself and not eating properly, like eating 75% of your calories in chips is going to be very different than eating 75% of your calories in whole foods. Right, right. right? Which like is the exactly the calorie versus nutrition, high density foods, right? Yeah. And the way that your body perceives how much it needs to eat like this is again we're diverting but this is where some of the problems come from with eating a lot of processed food is your body doesn't recognize the calories the same way and the body doesn't signal the same way when you eat processed food as it does when you eat whole foods Ooh, and i can't wait to talk about this on another episode <laughs> i know this is definitely an area we have to cover so education and guidance would definitely be needed because otherwise you're just you're not going to be compliant for any length of time so yeah there was a few drawbacks that you know some of the more information there um, even at least in the dietary guidelines what counseling was offered what information was shared uh, would have definitely been useful um, but overall this study really aligns with what we know in general restricting calories without reducing nutrition is only going to have positive outcomes on health. Fasting in some capacity improves overall health as well. And again, it depends on where you're starting from. Right. But right. for those at home, you know, if you want to start doing things like maybe not eating right before bed, like late night snacking is not good for our overall health. And so maybe cutting back. So, you know, if you're eating at like 9.30 and you're going to bed at 10.30, maybe thinking, okay, well, maybe I'll have a smaller snack an hour ahead of time so that it clears my gut before I go to sleep, um, you know, is, is one of the ways we can start working towards some intermittent fasting for those. So in, um, in doing this, you're 
increasing the window of not eating overnight. So you're starting that window a bit earlier in the day, even if you aren't per se intermittent fasting following the specific rules, it does help to increase that window slightly. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it depends on kind of your personal health. Like I would highly recommend talking to a health professional about this, whoever yes. your health professional um, is, but any way you can start adding in a little bit more of a increased window of intermittent fasting um, is going to have really big health benefits. So, I mean, your goal might be, you know, three days a week, having 16 hour windows, Maybe if you're regularly eating a sad diet or maybe not a great diet, or if you are one of those people that does struggle with hyperglycemia, so like blood sugar fluctuations and you need to snack frequently, trying to do a 20 hour or 22 hour fast like they recommend in the study is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some work, um, which is why it should be a little bit more of a slow progression unless you were under the direct supervision of a health professional. Right. And these people in the study were under the direct supervision of a health professional. Yeah. So it's something everybody can start incorporating, but you have to make sure you're doing it safely. That's, that's kind of the warning I wanted to add in, right. Um, Make sure you're in, if you are trying to calorie restrict, this isn't about just blanket restriction. This is about being more selective about the foods that you're eating. So you're getting more nutrients, but less calories, but you're still able to get that satisfied feeling after you've eaten. Otherwise your body's gonna keep telling you like, no, we're hungry, we need more, we're hungry, we need more. And your hormones have a huge control over your actions Um, and they will win at some point. Yeah, when you're hungry, you're hungry. Yeah. I did wanna just throw in a little thought about people who want to do the intermittent fasting, fasting, Mm -hmm. this doesn't apply to people who have issues with if there's eating disorder concerns, or if there's other concerns, like this is something that you definitely want to, um, to speak with a a healthcare professional on. If you have these kinds of uh, eating issues and, and weight issues, I mean, we're talking about how this helps metabolically, but this study was done on who again? The people who had type two diabetes? Uh, they had metabolic, metabolic syndrome. syndrome. Right. Yeah. So this is on people with metabolic syndrome. So this uh, type of study would apply mostly to people with metabolic syndrome already, which is a growing percentage of our population in North America. Yeah. But I am really glad that you brought that up because this should not be used as a way to further control weight if you do have some uh, mental health issues around eating disorders and things like that. That's a very serious issue. I highly, highly encourage you um, to get help and support if that's where you are. So, but uh, yeah, it's, that's a, that's a big concern. I'm wondering if we should do a topic on that as well. I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. Uh, So going back to the study, we're able to infer that by lowering BMI, which is uh, weight to height ratio and waist circumference, like this is the big one, waist circumference, we improve overall health. We already talked about waist circumference in the vegan episode where we were looking at, um, it was vegans versus omnivores and which ones had the better health outcome. And just to jog your memory, really the outcome was not one as best necessarily better than the other, but people that had 
uh, lower waist circumferences had better health outcomes. Right. So, but if you want more details, go back and check that episode out. Uh, by lowering blood pressure, we reduce risk for metabolic disease and, of course, cardiovascular disease. Yep, including stroke and heart attacks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And again, these are things we have. A, like there is genetic factors, but there's a lot of other factors too that we have control over. Um, so we can make the choice by increasing insulin sensitivity. We reduce our risk of type two diabetes. Um, we can see this too with our fasting glucose. And again, this is something we can definitely talk to our doctor about getting tested. This is something any doctor I don't see uh, would have an issue, uh, at least as a baseline, getting tested to make sure that you aren't getting into a risk factor. Um, so talk to your doctor about getting a lipid panel. Again, this checks all of your blood lipids and getting a fasting glucose test done. See where you're at. Do you want it, to talk first? No. Yeah. Do you want to talk for a second about insulin and blood glucose and how they link together? Yeah, I sure can. Um, so insulin is a hormone that's secreted by your pancreas. And this is the hormone that allows glucose, which normally circulates through your blood. This is how glucose gets to all the parts of your body. Insulin allows glucose to enter the cell. Without insulin, glucose can't enter the cell and it can't be used as an energy source. So insulin is vital for your life. And we, we know this because when we look at the history of type one diabetics, I mean, children used to get it and, and they would die basically of starvation. Like they, their, their bodies could not get the energy they need and they died very young until a Canadian scientist discovered yes. insulin. And was Anting able to invest. I know in Toronto, which yep. is cool. I love that story. But literally parents were just seeing their kids come alive again because of insulin. So the problem with a lot of people nowadays when we have metabolic disorder and type 2 diabetes is we lose our sensitivity to insulin, which means it doesn't work as well. It's like a lot of people liken insulin to a key and then the receptor, which is the protein that lives on the surface of the cell, is where that key fits in and it almost opens a door so that glucose can get in. When we have insulin sensitivity, what we have is that key does not work very well anymore. It's something's gumming it up. Something is stopping it from working. And so it takes more and more insulin in order to get the same amount of glucose into the cells. Now, this is dangerous for lots of reasons because the cells aren't able to get access to the energy they need. Plus high glucose levels circulating through the blood is very inflammatory and, and really not a good state to be in because we know glucose is very sticky and it's supposed to be at a very specific range of concentration. And if it goes outside that range in either direction, you can have negative health outcomes. Right. So we um, want the, the sugar in the blood, the glucose in the blood to get out of the blood into the cells to feed the yes. cells. And if our cells are sensitive to insulin, then yeah. it unlocks that key and the, the sugar comes out of the blood into the cells. The cells can use it and burn it and store it and do whatever they need to do with it. But yes. if we're not sensitive, then the insulin just keeps building up and knocking on yes. that door and the door is not opening because it's not sensitive to it. Exactly. So, and if we think about it, like this is insulin affects every cell in the body. Um, people often think about muscle cells when they think about insulin and we need it. Like we need to get up and walk around and do the stuff we want to do. So that glucose has to get into our muscles, but every other cell in our body requires insulin to function. Our brain, our heart, liver, 
And this is where um, we're starting to see, and I'm, I'm slowly learning more about this because I think it's absolutely awesome. Um, our liver is actually, when that becomes insulin desensitized, it, it causes a lot of really big metabolic issues because the liver is where metabolism happens. Right. Um, so insulin sensitivity is not where you want to be. You want to be more insulin sensitive. And so calorie restriction or intermittent fasting are really, really good ways of just increasing your sensitivity, which means you need less insulin to get the same result. Right. Right. So then again, it's less taxing on the body. Again, we're, we're able just to work faster, more efficiently. Where else? Uh, There was no diet outlined, uh, which we talked about. So we really have to extrapolate from the study that there was an increase in low calorie, high nutrient density foods, soon as I hear that, what's the first thing you think of? <laughs> right. Vegetables, vegetables, right. which is, I mean, what I talk about all the time when people say like, how should I eat better? Like eat your vegetables right. because they are nutrient dense, low calorie. They're really great bang for your buck. People are home more now start growing your own stuff. I mean, it's winter here. We now have hydroponics, right? So we can grow our own, but yeah, more vegetables. You can't go wrong with more vegetables. Uh, there was no conflict of interest in the study, which was good. So this is something whenever we're doing any, uh, reading any papers, we really want to make sure to check for that, that there's no conflict or no bias. Really the take home, find ways to incorporate intermittent fasting into your regime in whatever way works best for you. And this is, this is really my take home whenever I talk to anybody, you know, use this information as education and knowledge take from it anything that works for you in your diet lifestyle budget whatever and make it work for you I mean we're all individuals we all have different things going on different factors different backgrounds Um, but intermittent fasting is something everybody can incorporate in little ways or in big ways if that works for you too so it it is going to help Um, Other things we can do is, you know, watching late night snacking, um, learning how to incorporate some of the low calorie or no calorie treats during different times of the day if we are trying to restrict uh, and give our digestive system a break. And this is where like herbal teas come in. Green tea, there's been so many studies showing the benefits of green tea, but even other ones as well, you know, ginger tea, chai tea. My favorite is Bengal spice. I just love the cinnamon. Um, that's I have the to one try from, that one. Oh my God, it's my favorite. I've been drinking it for years. It's by Celestial Seasoning. And it's the box with the tiger on the front. And it's got cinnamon. I think it's got chicory, cardamom, black pepper, and vanilla. And it's, Interesting. Yeah, it's delicious. And you don't ever, because of the vanilla, you don't have to add any sweetener because it tastes like it's a bit sweetened anyway. But there, of course, there's no calories in it. So, so is it a herbal tea or is it a black tea where they add these spices to? No, it's an herbal tea. It's caffeine free. So I normally drink it if I'm trying to do this intermittent fasting and I don't want to be snacking at night, I'll have a cup of herbal tea instead. And this is my go-to because there's right. no caffeine. So, right, and... Right. This is something we should do another study on. Cinnamon is fantastic for improving insulin sensitivity. We need some more studies. Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, there's another thing. If you're diabetic or you're worried about blood sugar levels, try adding more cinnamon in your diet. This tea is a good way to do that. Um, But you can even snack on other things like what they said, cucumber, 
um, leafy greens, tomatoes, as a way of, you know, consistently being able to intermittent fast without actually not eating anything. Right. So there are options. Um, include more days without treats. It, we, we live in, like, not to use this word too lightly, but an epidemic of like sugary treats everywhere we go. They are We're worth it. I'm going to stop for a fancy latte wherever I'm going to go, or I'm going to stop and get a cookie because it's been a stressful day. Or you, know, you like, go in to get your green tea and what are you greeted with? An entire beautiful display of yeah, dessert. And it, and it looks so good. It does. Like, I'll be like the first to admit it's right. tempting. Yes. But, you know, try and find days where it's like, you know what? I don't need that. You know, it's, it's not even a matter of, I hate that word deserve it. Like we all right. deserve to be treated well. And sometimes that is indulging in whatever we want within limitations, but we don't need it all the time every day. Right. Right. Like it used to be a true treat where it was like once a week, you know, somebody in the family would make a cake, for example, and you get it for a couple of days until it was gone. And then if you wanted more treats, you had to make it. But now it's like, oh, I'm going to stop at the drive through. What do I want? And you could get whatever you want in an instant. Um, so just, you know, be aware of how much you're eating. I think that's the first step, you know, maybe keep a log of, you know, just the treats that you're eating. So you can see kind of where your maybe indulgences are and start trying to cut back a little bit, find, so find good substitutions for them, find ways to compromise. So maybe specific days of the week, you're going to cut back intermittent fast, restrict calories, whatever method works for you. Um, and really this is the message every time work on developing healthy habits that work for you that are sustainable that make you feel good and and just uh keep doing that for as long as you can that's that's um yeah it's really all about the overall healthy habits you have and the more you can increase a healthy habit even a little bit then it kind of leaves less space for one that may not be as healthful to your long-term goals yeah. by adding in some more cucumbers. Yeah. Oh, no, I totally agree. I read this book and I, I should link to this on uh, the show notes called The Compound Effect. Have I talked about this book before? It does not ring a bell. Tell me about it. Yeah. By Darren something. I'm going to have to, I wonder if I have my book around somewhere. Um, but he talks about how small changes that you're able to incorporate every day have this compound growth effect very similar to investing and it really depends on what type of habit that you're investing in will dictate the type of health outcomes you want in it so you know if you decide oh i'm going to start baking from home more you know now you're going to be eating a lot more sweet treats but if you decide hey i'm going to make sure i commit to a 20 minute walk every day again that compound interest will grow because you're going to start feeling better you're going to start developing these healthy habits and that kind of snowballs so that's a good point because I wonder how much of what people do or don't do is because it just seems so big yeah it's like so big so intimidating so much change and it may you know kind of oh I'm gonna back off on this because that's just too much Mm -hmm. and it doesn't I think that's where maybe nutrition does get a bad name because it doesn't, in my opinion, it does not have to be these drastic changes. It's we get more long-term impact with the small changes we can make consistently for the rest of our lives. That's where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. And those 
those are the little things going to bed half an hour earlier, making sure we're drinking an extra liter of water a day, making sure we're getting out for a 20 minute walk, making sure we're giving our family and people we love a little bit more hug and working hugs and working on that physical affection and building those connecting relationships. You know, these don't cost a lot of money or any money. They don't take a lot of time, but the health benefits we can reap from just these small changes are just going to grow and grow and grow over our lifetime. It's, um, it's a good goal. It's a good goal. There's always tomorrow. Yeah. To look forward to uh, making a little change if that's yeah. what you want to do. Exactly. So awesome. yeah, I, I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. This is uh, interesting. I'm, I was really interesting to hear the two different types of kind of common today diets, if we want to mm-hmm. call it intermittent fasting versus calorie restriction, and um, to see that they both have benefits for people with metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And then there's even a little bit extra benefits if you take the intermittent fasting route. So that was fascinating. Thank you for the study. No, thank you. It's It's been fun. I love chatting about all this really cool research is there neat is- to know where we should be focusing our time because we're all limited in time and energy and money and you know, it's, it's, where do we want to focus our attention? Right. So yeah, it's been cool. Thank you so much for listening. Fascinating. Awesome. Thank you for listening for exploration into more health research. Don't forget to subscribe. And we'd like to thank Joseph McDade for the music. If you have any comments, ideas, or recipes to share, you can reach us at ReetSearch on Instagram and Twitter and ReetSearch Podcast on Facebook. That's spelled R-E-E-T Search.